0: This morning, our scripture reading is from 1 John. You can follow along on the screens. We're kind of, uh, we're not reading every verse and every part of every verse. So uh, the screens will probably be the easiest thing to follow. Uh, I'll be reading selected verses from 1 John chapter 3 from the English Standard Version. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another the word of the lord my name
1: is peter i am one of the pastors here welcome you to church service this morning we are we are in our series called true love in the book of first john and today the title of the sermon is first love Uh, One of the things that uh, is true about me is that um, I'm married to Susie, my wife, whom I pursued for four years. We've been married for, we're in our 20th year now, and she is a loving person, and many of you know her to be so, but I have a proximity to her love, and uh, I tell her this on a regular basis, I marvel at the way that she pours herself out for our family Every single day. And it's different than uh, the way I do it. Or I think maybe a guy would do it. There's something special about a mother slash wife's love that's unique and different. And I experience it to be very sacrificial. And I have noted that often it feels like if she loves, she loves at her own expense. So for our children to get a good night's sleep it meant that she wasn't sleeping because she'd get up and she'd feed and she'd change and uh, settle the kids back down to sleep. If she cooks, it's because she's spending her time and her energy, her effort thinking about what she's going to make, going shopping, prepping, cooking. It's a lot of work. And then she has to spend all that energy afterwards convincing me to clean. It's just not worth it sometimes. Uh, so she leaves me alone. But that's often the case with love. There's very uh, rare occasions do we see free love. Most love is very expensive. And when I am touched by scenes of love, love sightings, uh, I think it's because it's sacrificial in nature. Somebody's giving up their energy, their time, their effort, their opportunity, their things. Often their life, for the flourishing of somebody else. Here's the truth. Love on earth is expensive. You have never been loved except at the cost of somebody else. For you to grow, for you to know, for you to change. Somebody is working on you. Somebody's pouring their wisdom into you. Somebody is spending time with you. Somebody's making the effort to talk with you. Love is always costly. And on top of the fact that love is costly, often we don't even know what love is. We don't know what is loving. We fly under the banner of love, but sometimes it's counterproductive. Often it's self-serving. It's meeting your own needs rather than meeting the needs of others. Loving someone is a complicated and costly matter. I was floored years ago when I first really read this verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. This is love. I want to note that this is the only time, only place in the Bible where the Bible defines what love is. There's nothing else like this verse. Later on in this chapter, John says, God is love. It doesn't say what love is. It's what God is. What is love? This is it right here. This is love. Not that we loved God. This is the first thing I want us to notice about, the, about what love is. It's not what you and I have. That's the truest and first thing about love. Whatever it is you think you have for your children or the ones you claim to love, it's not actually love. Okay, that's the first thing. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. By definition, love is divine. It's not of human origin. It's not something that we understand, that we have a source that we draw from in and of ourselves, but it comes from God. He thought it up. He is the source of it, He's a sustainer of it, and the thing. That God has emanating out of him is what we have labeled to be love. The thing that emanates from us, by definition, is not love compared to what love actually is. And then God, because we don't know it, he demonstrated it for us. He sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is the premier example of what love looks like. Jesus Christ dying on the cross for our sins. You can die for somebody. That's still not love. You can spend your whole life pouring yourself out for somebody, but that's not love. I'm going to show you in a little bit why that's not love. What God has and what God did, that is the purest and only love on earth, the death of God's son on the cross for us. And this is a unique uh, belief that Christians have. And this is what, why Christianity exists. This is why Christians gather because of this one demonstration, one reality we call love. And it's captured in the cross. And that's it. Everything else is not love comparatively it's a strong statement i want to show you why that's true we have two points today one the problem with love and the command to love first the problem with love we'll look at verse 12 we should not be like cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother and why did he murder him because his own deeds were evil Now, I don't know about you, but as long as I've known me, as long as I can remember me, I have longed for love. I have needed love. I have wanted love. I have liked love. I have pursued love. And yet, why all the hate? Why is there hate and murder in our world? I assume you're just like me. We really want love. We were made by love. We exist because somebody loved us. Then all we want is love. Why do we then hate? Why does anything other than love even exist? If every human being is born of love and we desire love, need love, pursue love, why do we hate? Here's the answer. On earth, love, if we love at all, is a zero-sum game. It's a zero-sum situation. Now I asked in the first service how many people knew what zero sum meant, and it was zero people who knew it. What does it mean when I say it's a zero sum situation? What does zero sum mean? Exactly. The answer. That's what I heard. (laughs) Zero sum means there's no gain. There's no loss. It just stays the same. It stays at zero. If there's a plus one here, it's because there's a minus one somewhere else. Right? That was Kathy Kuhn's answer this morning. She's an accountant, so I believe her. Love is a zero-sum game here on earth. We can't all be winners, contrary to what Julie said about the gingerbread contest. (laughs) If somebody wins, it's because somebody lost. It's not my fault if my kids' gingerbread house won. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> Conservation of energy, that's what I'm talking about. Law of thermodynamics, the sum total of all of the love on the planet stays exactly the same. The needle doesn't move ever. If I wipe your tear away, it's because I'm shedding one. If you're sleeping well, it's because I'm losing sleep. If you're eating, it's because somebody served you. Nobody's actually gaining anything. The sum total of love on our planet exactly the way it was ever. There's no actual improvement. Nothing's ever going up or down in total. That's the reality on planet Earth. And that's exactly what happened with Cain and Abel. Cain looked at his brother and said, it's either him or me. He understood the zero-sum nature of life. It's Abel for Cain. Abel must die so Cain can live. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because Cain had a scarcity mentality. He understood in order for him to be loved by God, he had to take God's love for Abel away from Abel. Cain looked into his own self, the resources he had within, and he found within himself a swirling energy that was available to him. You know what that energy was? It was fear and jealousy and scarcity. Cain killed Abel, not because he hated him, but because he wanted the love that he saw Abel had from God. God looked down on Cain and Abel, and whatever Abel was doing pleased God, and that made Cain very nervous. It made him feel like Abel needs to die so that he can get the approval that Abel had. Cain understood life correctly, that it's a zero-sum game. He wanted that love for himself. They both can't have love, obviously, is what Cain thought. And so he reasoned if Abel is eliminated, then God will have to love me instead of Abel. And so Abel's dead. That's the nature of love. For you to have life, somebody else has to be murdered. We know this. This is how human, fleshly, earthly love works it's scarce, it's insufficient, it's need based. Every time you love someone, you are also meeting your own needs, it's inconsistent, and it ultimately fails. I was doing math with one of my kids and um, confession, I'm not good at spending time with my kids in that way. I love for them to join me in what I'm already doing. Um, But for me to join them in what they're doing, that takes a lot of effort on my part. So there has to be quite a bit of coercing uh, from Susie for me to read with my kids or do homework with my kids. I didn't grow up with my parents involved in my life at that level. I have no memory, muscle memory for that, no reflex. And so um, it's a great deal of sacrifice for me. A Couple of weeks ago though, I sat down at my wife's begging uh, and I did math with one of my girls and she asked me to do an hour of math. And being the amazing guy that I am, I did it for an hour and a half. And I felt like I was dying, I really did. (laughs) I felt like this girl is murdering me. My life for hers, my time, my opportunity my energy, my focus, my needs, neglected. And it's not just the time and effort, right? It's the emotional energy it takes to not yell at your kid and to stay patient and, and not ask philosophical questions like, why do you not understand this? It's really a lot of work. And I can feel me reaching my fail point. It just was coming. It's just right there. I'm going to blow my lid really soon. (laughs) Was the need for her improvement in math end? No, my patience ended. There were more problems to be solved, but I couldn't do it. And that's the nature of human love. I reach a fail point. I lack wisdom. I lack consistency. I lack the power to love well to the end. Loving someone to the end, that is really, really hard. To the end, so many things just eventually kind of peter out. But God, Jesus, God says that Jesus loved us to the end. I never thought about that. I never appreciated how hard it is to love someone to the end. You know, love ends on your part because you die. It's not because there need to be love ended. You died. You ended. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. That's verse 11. I feel like this is a burden we cannot bear. I can't think of a single human being that's capable of loving one another. I mean, it just takes nothing, nothing for good news to turn into bad news. Just talking to a person this week who started this amazing new job just seven months ago. Guess what? Already it's so complex with his boss, and he's looking for another job. How did it get there so quickly? What does it take for a relationship to get weird? Nothing. One little exchange, and you don't see it coming, and there you are, decelebrating the very thing you were celebrating just seven months ago. Love fails. How can we love one another? How is this a fair request of us, valuable, needy creatures like us? And the answer is, we are not to love. We are commanded to love. Verse 23 says this, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Now, what if you were at a restaurant And uh, your server comes along and you say, you know, I like the double bacon cheeseburger. And they say, you know, let me think about that. Let me understand why you would want this uh, meal right now. What's your cholesterol? Do you have uh, a report from your doctor? I'd like to read your physical. (laughs) If a servant did that, would you be aghast? Would that make any sense to you at all? Because what is the primary objective of someone who is serving? To take your order. They literally come to you and say, Can I take your order? And whatever you say you want, whatever your order or command is, they obey it. That's the first imperative of a servant, is it not? C.S. Lewis says, Whenever you think about obeying God, you're not obeying God, you're taking application. Uh, I'll think about it. I'll consider it, and if it makes sense to me, then I'll do it. That's not what God is saying in 23. And this is whose command? God's command. It's his command that we believe in the name of his son and love one another. I want you to appreciate this insight. When somebody commands you to do something, it's hugely freeing. Because when God says, obey my command to love, He's saying you don't have to embody love. You don't have to be love. You don't have to be a loving person. That's completely, totally irrelevant. You don't have to understand it. No comprehension required for you to love because it's a command. You don't have to agree with me at all. You don't have to ponder whether that person is deserving of love, whether they're taking advantage of your love. Doesn't matter at all. You don't have to own it. Nothing. Nothing. All you have to do is focus on obeying the command. If God said, I want you to be a loving person, you're in trouble. (laughs) I want you to understand what love is and be wise and perfect in the way you dispense love. Apply it perfectly, just so, at just the right time, be love. You can't do it. But that's not what God says. God says it's my command. I am the author of love. It's my responsibility for that love to be perfectly timed, for that love to meet the person exactly where they're at. I understand how to be loving, and I will command you, and all you have to do is say yes. Just do it. You're a servant. You're not a lover, you're a servant. This is the first truth about love. And it is so freeing because you are now released from the authorship and the wisdom and the responsibility of love. All you have to do is obey. It's a command. Have you ever thought about it that way before? God is the sole author of love. Verse 1. See what kind of love. Who? The Father has given to us. Whose love is it? It's the Father. Where does it come from? It comes from the Father. And that's why there's part two in verse one, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Now, this is not making us lesser than God in that sense that we're small and he's big, though that's true. That's not John's point here. John's point is that we come from God. That's why he's our Father. That's why we are his children, Our origin is God. Love's origin is God. See what kind of love the Father has. And then verse 16. By this we know love. How do we know what love is? By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. Love doesn't start with us. We never understand what love is. We just don't. It's beyond our comprehension. Romans 5.8, I love this little verse. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's God himself demonstrating his love towards us. By definition, that's what love is. And notice the context of this love in that while we were yet sinners, meaning we didn't deserve it. We weren't loving. There wasn't something compelling about us. There was nothing beautiful or attractive or deserving about us that caused them to go, oh, I have a reaction now to their loveliness. It's just his love towards us. In that while we were yet sinners, there was no asking, there was no deservingness. it's just God being God. And that should free us. Let me free us even more. Ephesians 3, these four verses, so beautiful, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God, not to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Notice the contradiction in verse 19. Paul says, And to know this love that surpasses knowledge or knowing. Paul's prayer is that we know this thing that we can't know. It's not possible for us to know God's love. We can't know it, but notice what verse 19 says, That you may be filled, this is an explanation of how we would know, That you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. God. So for us to know God's love, it's not us comprehending it in our heads, but it's us being filled with God himself because he is love. That's what it says. Verse 19, for you to even come close to this idea of love, it's not about you at all. It's about you being empty of you and being filled with God instead. The problem, the human problem is that we are filled with us instead of with God. And when God made us, he made us to be empty so that we can be filled with him. We are filled with our ego. I was listening to a podcast last night as I was falling asleep. I remember nothing else about it except this one thing I caught in my half-sleep state. This one guy, I don't even know who he is, he said, ego is basically defensiveness. The self is just insecurity. The self is just self-righteousness. It's hollow. But that's what it is. Us filled with our is just ego. And us being filled with God is to be filled with love. If we can't know this love, now verse 20 presses it even further. It says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than what? We ask or imagine. We can't even imagine love to ask for it. If you sat there thinking about it, you can't think up love. It doesn't come from your mind. It doesn't come from human experience with other human beings who don't know what love is. There is no way you understand love from the way your parents loved you or other authority figures poured into you. It doesn't work that way, because everything you experience is complicated. They're meeting your needs while they're meeting their needs. So you've never experienced pure love from anyone ever. It just doesn't exist on planet Earth. We can't even ask for it. The love of God, the love that we need, surpasses knowledge, it surpasses thought, imagination, and is completely beyond us. But here's the good news. finally, finally, we have, a, we have a source of love that's not limited to our scarce resources in the closed system we call earth. You know all that loving we do? It's Christmas time. Is there more love because it's Christmas, Christmas time? Absolutely not. For you to buy Christmas presents, guess who's slaving away another part of the country making those precious toys that you're giving away? When you're having a great meal at a restaurant, guess who's slaving away preparing your food? When you're saying prayers of thanksgiving for the heat, guess who's cold? There's always somebody losing if we are gaining. There isn't more love at Christmas. Absolutely not. The needle is staying exactly the same. But for the first time, for the first time, the needle is beginning to move a little bit. There is an increase of love and goodness in the world? Where does it come from? It has to, by definition, come from outside of the system. It has to. How else is redemption possible? Redemption is the ultimate love source because the needle has moved all the way where something good becomes bad. You talk about karma, You say it was meant to be. You say all things work for good. How? How is good able to come from bad? How is there any kind of positive needle moving in your life? It's because somebody outside of the system is pouring their love into your life. And that, my friends, is what Christianity is naming as the love of God in Jesus Christ. When God said, I will send my son to die for your sins on the cross, it's God saying, if I let this go, nothing's ever going to change. Yeah, you may have a loving act here, but it's at the expense of somebody else who's murdered. If your family's really doing well, it's because other families are not, unless God intervenes somebody else has to inject a new love source into our world. That's redemption. I want to introduce this one author to you. I think I've quoted him before, Paul Bloom. He wrote for the Boston Review this article about empathy, uh, commenting on another author. Uh, But he summarizes her book. He says this, empathy is so accepted And it's accepted wholesale, especially in our uh, culture. It's such a trendy word. Nobody questions it. Nobody's critical about this word empathy. And we as a society uh, have come to define love as empathy. And he totally disagrees. And all the research, he says, shows that empathy is actually quite destructive. Now, I was really uh, interested in this story because uh, I had read one of my favorite authors is Edwin Friedman, and he has long ago, uh, since the 70s, maintained that empathy is not love. That sometimes it can appear loving, and it can... Uh, achieve, uh, do loving acts, but it itself is not love. And now here's some other thinkers coming around to this idea. And many of you know Brene Brown, who writes about vulnerability. And if you Google Christian Conference and Brene Brown, she's speaking like at every Christian conference out there. She's not, I don't think she's a Christian, but Christians have even glommed onto this idea of vulnerability and empathy. And so it's really popular, I think she's one of the most popular uh, talks on TED Talks, uh, millions of views. But here's what Paul Bloom uh, says about empathy. And by the way, uh, if you don't know how to get to my sermon notes, if you get the loop, there's a little section in the loop called sermons. And in there are all the resources you need for ser- uh, related to sermons, all our audio all the sermon notes and outlines. There's also a sermon feedback form you can fill out if you love or hate my sermon. Uh, you can let me know directly using the form. Um, but Paul Bloom, it's worth your read, this article. He says this, that empathy over the long haul leads to depression. And we know this. There's literally things called compassion fatigue. Right? If you are empathetic long enough, you start hating yourself. And that's true. You know, maybe we're not Cain and we didn't murder Abel, but if you try to love Abel too much, you start hurting yourself, right? So empathy leads to depression and narcissism, he says. That empathy eventually becomes just another self-gratifying experience. It's about you having a good cry or you feeling alive or you being a loving person. And thirdly, he says, empathy is not as uh, indiscriminate as we like to imagine it is. Uh, All the studies show that we favor attractive people. And if you are an attractive person, you are receiving more empathy than a non-attractive person. It even shows in the way we study intersections and four-way stop signs. If you drive, let's say, a Mercedes-Benz then people are more empathetic to you. They let you get away with far more than if you're driving a Honda Civic. It's true, it's a fact. And if you're driving a Tesla, forget about it. Everything parts in front of you like the Red Sea. (laughs) So empathy isn't love. And I wanted to just name this as a case in point. Empathy, as popular as it is, It's our very best attempt at trying to generate love on our own. And it eventually also fails because empathy, when it's of human origin, is uh, is prone to fail. Verse 23 again, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another. Notice that this command that we talked about is twofold. And the command to love is always twofold. You will not find a a single command to love in the Bible. It's always, implied or explicit, twofold. Notice the first is that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the first part. And love one another. And this idea of believing in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, it's different than loving God the Father. Love the Lord your God, it's different than loving um, Jesus Christ. Because to love Jesus or to believe in his name, it's not to love him, but to be loved by him. To believe in Jesus is to believe that God sent his son to die for you. That means you believe that the Father loves you. You break down what believing in Jesus means, and that's why it's different than just believing in God. Maybe believing in God is more like believing that he exists. Right? Hebrews says you believe that he exists, and then he rewards those who believe him, who approach him. But believing in Jesus is believing that God loves you, and God showed it by sending his son to die for you. That's part one. It's Christ dwelling in our hearts. It's God abiding in us and us in him. It's us believing that God loves us. It's us being filled with the love of God for us as demonstrated for us on the cross. That's part one. And as you wrestle with this part one, then the revelation comes. Then the grasping comes. That's us now letting God's love overflow to love one another. If you reverse this order, you aren't going to make it. It's always God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And you get filled with his love. The penny drops on the love of God. And then, and then you realize loving another person, it's not about you being loving at all. It's in fact, it's about you getting yourself out of the way and obeying the command to love others the way God has loved you. It's an overflow. It's an imitation. It's you being poured out. God's love is primary. It's always first. Another way to say that is, love flows down. Do you love your children more, or do you love your parents more? Do you do more math when you have to love your kids or do you do more math when you have to love your parents? I would love to see a brain scan of people trying to love parents and children, which parts of the brain get activated. I bet loving our children, it's right there in our the reptilian brain. It's just an instinct. And then loving our parents is up here in the frontal cortex. Just We're doing all of this executive thinking. Like, okay, I got them something that was $100 last Christmas, so this year I think I can go 50 bucks. I'll do 50 bucks. Hopefully they won't misread that. They won't feel gypped in any way. That should last a while to Mother's Day. You know, you do that math, don't you? Because love flows down. We can't love upwards. Things like respect and fear and awe and worship and trust, these things rise up But love flows down. That's the nature of love. It's pitched that way. And what that means is we don't generate love. We're not the source. We're not the author of it. We are mere vessels, conduits, channels of God's love flowing down to us. And then we open up, and it flows down out of us. But it's not our love that flows. It's God's love that's been flowing. We're simply opening up. And that's why John says, we are God's children. I want to conclude with these uh, couple of thoughts. Number one, do not, this Christmas or any Christmas or any time in between, ever take on the job of being a loving person. You are not loving are you? Mm -mm. You're needy, you're self-centered, you're calculating, you're an instant schemer. You look for opportunities, you're greedy, you're hungry, you're tired, you're angry, you're resentful, you're vindictive. I'm preaching now, aren't I? I want to invite you to focus on struggling for the rest of your life on what it means that God loves you. God loves you. How do you know? He sent His Son to die for us. He finally gave you a source to draw from that's not other people. You're not dependent on their fickleness, you don't have to fail with their fail points you can be centered and grounded and consistent because God's love is ever-flowing and it's overflowing. Struggle then with what it means to show up in any relationship or situation with prayer and trembling at the task of being vessels of God's love. That's all we are. We empty ourselves of ourselves and let the love of God fill us And then we show up that way and say, how can I be loved today? How can I be God's love today, right now? It's not my job to comprehend or sustain. It's not my job to understand or agree. It's simply to obey. How can I be a servant of the love of God? That's your battle. That's what it means to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I want you to shudder to think that you'd be left to your own devices. I mean, me, I don't even have an hour and 31 minutes of love to give to one of my kids to help them with math. I don't have it. I peaked at hour and 30 minutes. The message of Christmas is simple. It's simply this. You are loved. That's the whole story. God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Would you pray with me? I want to give you some time to pray, and I've been trying to do this at the end of the messages, and I want to give you a couple of minutes today. I want to ask you to repent of you trying to be a loving person. It's just another way we focus on ourselves. It's just another form of narcissism. God, we say in our hearts together that we don't have love and we are not love. It seems like such a conundrum to be human, to try to be human. It's so hard, God. So we repent of that effort to try to be something, to be something good or valuable or virtuous. We really are empty, nothing on our own. And that's the way you made us so that we can be filled with your love. So God, even now, I pray, fill us with your love. Holy Spirit, help us to know your love. God, we acknowledge that this world is scarce there just isn't enough for everybody here. We may not be like Cain who are murdering others, but we are living at their expense. Jesus, we need you. We need you. We ask for you this Christmas. Don't just come into the world, but come into our hearts, our personal lives, those moments when we are thin, we need you. God, show us this Christmas how to give up on ourselves and put all our hopes in you. Let us abide in you and you in us that we may be able to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.